Welcome to the GeoMob Podcast, where we discuss geo-innovation in any and all forms, be it for fun or profit. Good afternoon. This afternoon, it's my pleasure to be interviewing my old friend, Andy Coote. His biography which makes you gasp. And even though I thought I knew you pretty well, Andy, I was really impressed when I read this, this biography. You've been manager of spatial database systems at the Ordnance Survey. You've uh, been responsible for technical development in the SearchFlow e-commerce service. You were the director of consultancy services at Esri UK with a team of over 100 program managers and technical people. And now you're the director of consulting where? which is an independent IT consultancy specializing in the provision of strategic information, technology, and business advice. And your expertise has now grown into my domain of economics and business case development, and that's quite a lot. Have I missed something? Well, Stephen, maybe just quickly a couple of things. I spend a lot of my time now as a consultant for the World Bank and the UN Food and Agriculture Organization. And I enjoy that because it gives me an opportunity working in developing countries to put something back into an industry that's been very good to me over my career. And in a similar vein, I've really enjoyed working with the AGI, including with uh, with yourself, which is is where I think we first came into contact. I've had three stints on the, uh, the council over 20 years or so, and I was uh, chairman in 2010 and and that that's been really worthwhile for being able to put something back again indeed and i remember serving with you when you were chair of the agi and we had a lot of fun together and did some good stuff so tell me a little bit about consulting where okay well stephen when i left esri i felt that there was there was a bit of a gap in the market there there wasn't much in the way of independent advice being given to the industry and uh, particularly i felt there were a lot of projects that were not being approved because we hadn't been able to articulate the economic case for investment so that was really where myself and my business partner les rackham started out we uh, we looked at uh, that area and uh, have done in the subsequent 12 years a lot of work i'm, I'm not an economist by training i've sat at the uh, the feet of quite a lot of economists so over that 12 years and and uh, i think from the point of view of looking at business cases and so on then uh, we can we can cut the mustard but that's not all we do i mean we've got a team now of uh, just about 20 staff including the associates and we've got associates that are based in australia in europe and in sub-saharan africa so we really have got a, a footprint these days which is global i i keep waiting for the call to go and do some work in antarctica but uh, that one eludes me at the moment okay and so are these are these mainly government clients that you're working with or do you work with businesses as well well, they're, they're both. There's a lot of work for uh, developing countries in various parts of the world, but there's also work for commercial organisations. I mean, I still I still do work for my old employer, Esri, not in the UK, but they have distributors all around the world. And, and uh, I suppose my background, Stephen, coming from 
professional services is where I get asked to go in personally and help them with organizational issues and things that are really to do with with people because one thing I've always enjoyed doing is is building to teams and working with uh, with people and it's perhaps one of the things that you you miss a bit, certainly I do, working as, as an independent consultant. Before we get on to our main topic, Andy, we first met as competitors, must be 15 years ago or more, but we've been pals for a long time now, much longer than we were competitors since we both have moved on in our careers. And you've also moved across roles and organisations throughout your career. Do you think there's something about GEO that encourages friendly competition rather than always being at each other's throats? Yeah, for sure. I, I think that all of the people that you you meet in our industry, they have a passion for what they do. And, and that helps to transcend some of the politics that I observe in, in certain other industries. And, and let's face it, I mean, there, there's, there's few people in their careers get the chance of uh, looking at maps, which a lot of people <laughs> do for fun, and being paid to travel widely whilst doing it. And I think that's, that, that's significant, that, that passion aspect. But I think the other thing is that the world is, is big. There's relatively few people that, that do this kind of stuff, and the challenges are wide. So therefore, sharing experiences with, with competitors, if it does anything, it increases the size of the pie for all of us. And I think that that's something that has always encouraged me to, to share information rather than to, to keep it to myself. Okay, and so that mention of the size of the pie takes us very sweetly onto the location market survey that Consultingware recently released. This is, I think, the fourth version that you've released after the last 10 or 12 years, isn't it? You're right, Stephen. We, we did the first one in 2008, so it's, uh, it's over a span of 12 years. Uh, at the time of doing the first one, we we just started consulting where, and so a lot of doing that survey was about establishing our profile. But also, I was involved with the AGI at the site uh, at the time, and there was a lack of objective evidence about the size of the market, how many jobs it supported. So it's quite difficult when you were dealing with government to explain this industry and uh, why they should uh, support it. So I was pleased that that, that initial survey filled a, filled a gap there, but we we found a lot of interest in what we'd done. And, and so since then, it's grown in scope. I mean, we've been asked to look at the, the value of the demand side rather than the uh, supply side. So the supply side is those vendors and others offering things into the market. And the demand side is the, is the users consuming it in, in simple terms. And we've, we've spread out from looking purely at GIS and software to include earth observation and marine subsectors as, as well in the, uh, in the last couple of surveys. Now, in the UK, in terms of how we do this, we've been quite lucky because we have Companies House. Companies House provides a lot of base data on turnover, staff levels and other economic and financial information. We then use a lot of information from annual reports for larger companies. We track mergers and acquisitions. We do that on a constant basis. We look at recruitment trends and we also undertake sentiment surveys. We go out to opinion formers, 
like your good self and and ask how people are feeling about how the industry is is developing so we get a lot of other insights which come from a wide range of, of people both inside and outside the industry who we build up relationships with over the years and and often their views are given in confidence they know who they are and i just like to call them out really because we really appreciate their input and we probably couldn't do this uh, this work without their help it's a really impressive piece of work i've got to say and in fact i can remember back in 2007 2008 you sitting in my office when i was still md of map info uk and we did i think a first interview then for the very first survey and 12 years later you're still doing it and still phoning me up and saying what do you think about this have a look at that so uh, yeah I'm glad to, I am one of those contributors and I think it's a great piece of work that you do. Well, it's nice of you to say that, Stephen, but, you know, giving the praise back, I've always valued your views. You give them, you give them freely and in my experience, you're always worth listening to. So, uh, so it's a, a mutual fan club. Thank you, Andy. And let's hope the listeners to this podcast also think that I'm always worth listening to. Um, <laughs> so... Tell me about the audience for the survey. Well, it's C-suite executives, government decision makers, sales directors, really anybody who's involved in defining future strategy for their organisations. And we have customers for this from the the private sector and from the, uh, the the public sector. Since we live in such extraordinary times, we've also this time made a commitment to provide updates over the next 12 months to, uh, to people that buy the report because, as you and I discussed just before we came on the, uh, the call, the, the market impact of COVID-19 is very opaque at this stage. Uh, we hear horrible things from uh, Office of, of Management of the Budget in the last 24 hours suggesting that Q2 GDP is going to be down by something like 35%. I mean, that is absolutely horrific. That's a, a third of the, the economy wiped out for a period of time. And coming out of COVID-19, we, we don't know how much of that is permanent damage and how much is going to be simply bouncing back to where we were before. I, I think anybody that looks at this can't see that we're going to bounce straight back and just carry on again. But what we're not clear about is how deep the damage is going to be in the long term. And also, it's not going to be over for a while. I mean, we're, we're only just starting to see some of the, uh, the, the possible effects of this on the developing world. And whilst we might think our our NHS is is deficient in some respects. When you look at it compared to the developing world, it, the, the the potential there for horrendous loss of life is, is is just pains me to even think about it. Indeed, and it's a it's a challenging time to be in the market forecasting and surveying space because I don't think anybody can really accurately predict how the downturn that we're experiencing is going to impact individual sectors. I mean, I think just a thought from me on this is that public sector is a colossal part of the UKGI market. And all we know about public sector is that we're likely to see, at some stage, the bills have to be paid. We're likely to see a downturn in public sector expenditure in 
non-essential items, you know, and if if we can't convince public sector that GIS is essential, then we're going to be impacted by that. But if we can, then maybe we're one of the sectors that rides through this. Only time's going to tell. I agree. I, I think, though, the, the digital transformation agenda is uh, is going to come through this and, and perhaps be written even larger. Certainly, COVID-19 and, and uh, contact tracing is starting to come right up the agenda. And of course, that's underpinned by essentially geospatial information. So I, I think one of the things I take some comfort from, Stephen, is that the, the, the Geospatial Commission still seems to be expanding. And that tends to indicate that the government still has faith in the, the initiative that really started up uh, off back in uh, in 2017. So, so maybe we can take some heart from that. Indeed. In fact, I guess the Geospatial Commission now probably comes in the top 50, maybe even the top 20 employers in the geospatial market in the UK. <laughs> we could have a much longer discussion about that, but that's a separate, yeah. uh, that's a separate one issue. for another. So yes. give me a couple of examples of the users and use cases for the survey. So there's a couple of favourites I've got at the moment, Stephen, and one of our customers is in the health sector. And what they're doing is they're using VI-enabled 3D fly-throughs of the area where the, the patient lives to distract and interest them while surgeons are fitting pacemakers and doing other types of surgery where the, where the patient has to be conscious. So what they need to do is they need to make sure that the, the patient is, is kept interested during the procedure but doesn't get too anxious. So two things, they don't, they don't want them looking down at, at what they're fiddling about with when they're fitting the pacemaker, uh, but also if they do use these 3D headsets, they, they want to avoid contentious planning developments uh, <laughs> because these could actually uh, push up the heart rate of the, of the patient. So it's a, it's a very, very interesting field and one, one that I'd not come across before this, uh, this recent work. And of course, as we've just been talking about, the tracking technology for COVID-19 compliance, the work that's been done in South Korea and, and Singapore, I think is going to test UK society in terms of the, the ethics and the moral appetite for surveillance. We're moving there to, to something that once we get testing going, I think is going to come right up the agenda, which is the discussion of whether, in fact, people, once they've been diagnosed as, as positive, are going to be willing to carry their smartphone and have it on the whole time so that their movements can be, can be monitored. My own view is I've got nothing to hide. If that's going to stop the spread, uh, I'm happy to do it, providing that uh, it's in the control of government. I have some real concerns about it being in the in the hands of the uh, the the large commercial social media companies. But I think that the cybersecurity and and anonymization around this, uh, if it if it does use the standard protocols, then then maybe we don't have too much to worry about. I don't know whether you've been looking at the announcement in the last few days from Google and Apple about their contribution to contact tracing. And they're using, they're not using location technology at all in that. They're using uh, the Bluetooth low energy system that's available on all the Android and Apple phones. And 
they've got they're using a protocol called DP3T, which means that your phone broadcasts these random messages to another phone if it's within Bluetooth range. And that phone stores those messages. It doesn't know what phone they've come from or anything. It just has these random strings. And you can then log into a hospital server. And if any of the random strings that are on your phone have been logged on the hospital server as from a, an infected patient, then you're advised that you've been in contact with somebody who's got the infection. You don't know who it was or anything, but you know that you've been in contact. So presumably once people are, are tested and found to be through the virus and to have the necessary antibodies, then they're no longer infectious. And when they broadcast, those signals would give you the reassurance as well. I mean, it's quite, quite clever technology that it's not actually using location, it's using the Bluetooth. But I think you're right that this needs to be in the hands of government rather than of everybody who thinks they can spin up an app to track or trace or monitor the disease. And in my and, opinion... And I think, I think the other problem there, Stephen, is that is coordination. I've, I've had a number of people who got in contact and said, you know, I've got an idea for, for an app or a visualisation. Who, who should I get in touch with? And I think that we run a danger at the moment as an industry of, of not helping to coordinate this. And there's... Uh, there's some work going on through the Royal Society where Mike Batty from University College London is involved. And, and when I've been asked, what should I do with my idea? I've, I've directed them towards that because I think the, the Royal Society is a, is a pinnacle body and um, they will have the right connections to make sure that this lands well with Public Health England. But, but there is an awful lot of people running around with ideas which, which are, quite frankly, are, are probably just clouding the picture. Indeed. And I could, I could go off on a rant on that, but I'm not going to. I'm going to get back to your study, Andy. Give our listeners an idea of the scope of the recent location market study. So, Stephen, we do a financial breakdown of the market, and we do that by segment and also by activity type. So activity type will be whether uh, they're in data services, consumer mapping. The, the other segmentations are around the sector is consuming the, the data so uh, and the systems. Uh, so that's one, one aspect. So we've got a number of different uh, breakdowns of that type. We also look at sector by sector growth prospects. Uh, obviously, these are pre-COVID, but uh, nevertheless, there's some good evidence to, to show that the industry has kept growing through the periods where where we've had austerity. And, and this is partly, I think, to do with, uh, with new technologies. But I think it's, it, it's also a growing recognition that a lot of the questions that we ask as, as policymakers or, or decision makers, uh, there is a where element to them. There's a location element to them. Uh, and that you really can't make those kind of decisions unless you have decent information behind it. So, so I think it is, it, it's, it's a number of factors, but certainly my feeling is that our importance in terms of our contribution to society and, and how 
easily that is is recognised by people is improving. So so we've got some we've got some uh, good good evidence around that. We've we've done some competitive positioning. So uh, we've we've got a, a short analysis within the report on uh, most of the major major players in the uh, in the industry, uh, what they've been doing recently in terms of mergers and acquisitions, uh, what their turnover tells us about uh, uh, about the the way they're going forward as well. Uh, we've looked at um, technology trends, so we'll come on, I think, and talk a little bit about the hype cycle, but uh, that's uh, that's one aspect of it. And then we've looked at these external impacts and uh, what they you know, often refer to as as a step. So social, technological, uh, economic, uh, and political impacts that are coming in to the the industry from outside and and obviously affect us. Uh, we've got some very good industry opinion thought pieces, which are sector based, and um, uh, I'm particularly pleased that we've uh, we've got uh, a very interesting piece around um, uh, the defence and uh, intelligence industries, which, whilst obviously not giving away state secrets, does does indicate why that uh, is one of the fastest growing segments uh, of the market at the moment. And then we've looked at recruitment patterns, which are also very interesting when you start to look at the the, the rise of the data analyst. And uh, one of the things that, that pains me a little is that perhaps we as an industry don't make clear that actually we've been doing data analysis for an awful long time uh, and we've been doing it with big data. And I sat in a uh, an AI conference recently and uh, listened to... Uh, somebody talking 101 remote sensing uh, with a bunch of AI people there sat uh, wide-mouthed and, and just absolutely gobsmacked uh, at, the, at the kinds of things that uh, we've been doing for perhaps 10 or 20 years. Yeah. So uh, I do think uh, that, that that's, that's something that people will find interesting, but it does indicate that the uh, the cost of holding on to some of our best minds may actually be uh, uh, liable to increase, even even with what we're going through now. Well, that's good for some people. <laughs> yeah. So, tell me how a little bit about you end up giving a size to the UK location market. How big is that market? Uh, it's a, it's about a bit over two billion. We we think, um, Stephen. You know, there are some uncertainties. There's always uh, difficulties establishing the scope. I mean, what we do is is very much horizontal across many sectors. Uh, there's no figures from the ONS that would allow you to just say the size of this particular market. Whereas, if say we're in telecoms or something like that, there is there is much more in the way of uh, of, of national statistics. So so we we tend to look at activities in in three particular categories. Um, uh, geocentric activities. I mean, some of the defence market is can't be done without uh, geospatial information. There's a lot of uh, other activities that are, uh, are geo-enabled, so therefore it's important to the decision making. But it's uh, it's not the whole thing, and you can you can think about uh, applications that uh, um, the utilities use, where where those are largely geo-enabled. Uh, rather than being uh, geocentric, but then we've got a lot of casual 
geospatial use. And, and when you start to look into the app market and you start looking at, at things like, uh, for instance, um, personal fitness apps, they, they include geospatial. They're consumers of geospatial uh, information. Um, it enriches the experience, but it's, it's, it's somewhat casual. It's somewhat incidental to the, uh, uh, to the actual uh, use of the app. So we, we try to encompass each of those. Um, and what we've done is we've developed a value chain around the geospatial ecosystem. Uh, and we've used that to validate our decisions on uh, what to include and, uh, and, and what not. And, and, and that's somewhat subjective. We, you know, we, we, we have to admit we can't, we can't put uh, uh, an absolute ob objective measure on some of those things. However, on the supply side, we looked at almost... 3,000 companies to start with. These were from keyword searches, trade show directories, industry knowledge. And then we, we went through a painstaking process of, of checking uh, all of the websites um, that, uh, that were in those, uh, in those parameters and looked at annual reports. And, and eventually, we've come up with around a about 900 uh, who we think meet our, our key criteria. And from those, we've We've estimated percentage revenues of their geospatial activities because a lot of them are organizations like construction companies um, that carry out uh, a lot of geospatial, particularly land survey work, have a much wider portfolio of activities. Um, we've also tried to work out the percentage derived from UK business because quite a lot of the, the companies we're looking at are global players. And so therefore we have to we have to try and looking at annual reports and other other information, also information from opinion formers, we uh, we come up with our estimation of uh, of what we think the proportion of uh, of businesses in the UK. So um, on the demand side, we're we're looking more at major customer types, typical use cases. The breakdown of UK GDP is useful in that respect, and then we've done uh, some bottom-up triangulation from international studies. Uh, there are some like uh, an extensive study in Canada that we were involved in a few years ago, which uh, uh, we've taken into account some of the methodologies that uh, uh, we use there to come up with the, uh, uh, the size of the, the demand side of the market. And from that, we've, we've arrived at an estimate, which is a fairly broad one for around 10 to 15 uh, billion per annum. Um, so that's that's round about five to seven and a half times uh, the um, supply side. Uh, if you go to places like the US, their figures are something like 20 times uh, the uh, the size of the um, supply market. Uh, but they're, they've got more geography. And it sounds stupid to say that, but that does make a difference. Um, and therefore, uh, they are also different from us, um, both in Canada and the uh, and the United States, in terms of natural resources. And natural resources, the big generator of, uh, uh, of of usage. So, just explain once again the difference between the supply side and the demand side. You're saying that the demand side is five to seven and a half times the supply side. Yes, exactly. So the supply side is is those broadly who create geospatial data, uh, software, uh, produce uh, aggregated data sets. The demand side uh, is those who are uh, end users 
uh, either as uh, businesses, uh, as governments, uh, or as um, uh, private individuals. So we go right down to the right. level of, uh, of of looking at apps uh, and the uh, the the generation, as you know, of of money uh, from apps is relatively small. Um, the the majority of that ten to fifteen billion is corporations and and the public sector. Okay. So when you were researching this report, we had a conversation about the hype curve and where different technologies were on the hype curve. So could you explain to our listeners what the hype curve is, the geospatial hype curve? Okay, so so more normally called the um, the, the hype cycle, it concept in, invented originally, I think, by Gartner. And it's a, uh, a curve that on the left-hand side goes up very quickly. Um, perhaps Steve and I can give you a, a copy of it that you can you can put out with this. Right. Uh, and then it uh, it starts from what's called a technology trigger. So something totally new in terms of, of technology starting to come out of research into commercial exploitation. What happens first of all is the um, the marketing people get hold of this. And hype is generated, hyperbole about this being the greatest thing since sliced bread. And uh, we see the hype cycle peaking for things like AI at the moment. Uh, You can't talk about technology without slinging the word AI in there. As a computer scientist, I rail against uh, some of the things that are referred to as AI. But hey, if it's it's going to sell, then the marketeers and the, the salespeople will use it. What then happens is after a peak, it starts to drop down into um, what's called the trough of disillusionment, where people start to realize that perhaps it was not the greatest thing since sliced bread. There's a fair amount of BS involved in in what's been described. And uh, sometimes technologies just don't stop in the uh, in the trough. Uh, they actually drop out of, of existence completely. And there are a fair number of examples around technology that's happened over the years. And, and we can remember the, uh, the, the dot bomb uh, of websites where, yeah. where it looked for a while as though the entire internet might uh, sort of disappear completely. But then what happens is you start to emerge from that trough into what's called the slope of enlightenment, where people realize that maybe the hype wasn't uh, completely fulfilled, but actually there is some productivity gains to be had from a type of technology. And um, then it then moves on into what's called the the plateau of productivity, where its uh, adoption of a particular type of uh, technology has reached a level where a level of maturity and the incremental gains in terms of of productivity start to start to plateau out. So uh, that's the that's the hype curve. And what you what you try to do is you try to put uh, uh, technologies onto or new ways of using technologies onto that uh, onto that hype cycle. Just so that people can understand with some some buzzwords that will be more relevant to them. I can see looking at the hype curve that blockchain is just at the peak of expectations and about to take the rapid descent down into 
the trough of disillusionment with um, currently wearable UI and linked data being right at the bottom of that trough. What's in the slope of environment? Sorry, the slope slope of... um, Of Enlightenment. uh, in enlightenment, I mean, I think there, Stephen, there are there are a number of uh, a number of things, and uh, if you think about things like the the Internet of Things, if you think about CubeSats, you think about drones. These are all things that have been around for a while, but are now emerging out of that expectations being slightly dashed into really beginning to deliver productivity. And and I think we could we could mention a whole bunch of other things. But when when I look at the acquisition technology area, then drones, CubeSats, the Internet of Things, and and lidar are probably some of my uh, uh, my key takeaways. Just to go back. Blockchain is, I think, something that everybody has thought this is this is going to be totally revolutionary in terms of a peer-to-peer transactions, completely secure and so on. My problem with, with blockchain is that not the technology itself, but the fact that you actually have got some people that were involved in the development of blockchain that understand how it works. And you've also seen a hijacking of the, the term by a lot of the existing financial institutions where they're using blockchain as a peer-to-peer technology, but it's not uh, what originally was conceived by the, the inventors of blockchain. So, so there you've got a, a requisitioning of the term for something that isn't really was originally conceived. And, and I think that that's where we start to see it being at the uh, uh, at the top of the the hype cycle, because that recognition that it's being picked up by others and repurposed is just coming into play. I have to say, as probably peak cynic on blockchain and geospatial, that I'm rather pleased to see that so far no one has come out saying blockchain is the answer to contact tracing. <laughs> well, uh, Stephen, that's only a day or two away. Okay. So, so the, I mean, the, the other thing uh, I think that I'd like to pick out on two others just, one is around actionable insights and this move with platform as a service and the subriquet of intelligent, uh, artificial intelligence. A lot of the things that we're, we're doing, machine learning, neural networks, edge computing, platform as a service, all of these things have been around for a while. It, it's just the the, the ability of the internet and the, the, the power of the service that we now have uh, access to, to be able to uh, make these kind of things uh, happen. And, and certainly what I've been really impressed with is, is some organizations that are now providing insights. Instead of selling data and systems, what they're doing is, is they're providing platform as a service and saying, you want to know where the commodities market for uh, rice is going to be in six months' time. I'll show you how we do the analysis, but and that's going to be using remote sense data, uh, information from telecoms and other sources of, of social media data. I'm going to scrunch that together and I'm going to give you the answer, which then made use of by the likes of hedge funds means they can they can beat the market. And the financial incentive of being able to do that kind of thing is is enormous. And it gives me a certain amount of 
uh, satisfaction that if the financial markets are beginning to realise the power of geospatial, then there's half a chance that all the money that they make might trickle down into uh, into our industry. That's a good thought. That's a good thought. An alternative view on that would be, and of course, if the algorithms that are driving those decisions are open sourced, then we'd all be able to see where the markets were going and no one would be able to play the markets. Um, that, that, that's right. And then, then, then the market will disappear because the hedge funds are only going to be interested in this while it gives them an edge. Indeed. Um, so, uh, just we need to start wrapping up, Andy. But before we do, give me a couple of the highlights from the survey in terms of growth trends and companies on the up. Okay, so um, growth trends: average compound annual growth rate, two thousand seventeen to nineteen for uh, the industry as a whole was around about twelve percent. That's that's really quite impressive. That's backed up by. When you look at the uh, the turnover of the the usual suspects uh, on the supply side, Google, Garmin, Hexagon, Esri, they've all shown double digit growth over the uh, over the last three years. So so that that backs up our um, our analysis. I, I think that um, companies to watch. I'll just give you three very quickly. There's a there's an organisation called Palantir. And Palantir, almost certainly most people have not heard of. They're specialists in the intelligence community, fraud detection, and other dark arts. But if you want somebody who's really using AI in our marketplace, um, those those are um, guys to watch. Other smaller outfits, I like Geospock. Geospock, a Cambridge-based AI company, done a lot of really interesting things recently, starting to get heavily involved in uh, transport analysis. And then the other one is Orbital Insight. And Orbital Insight are a, an American company, but with a, a UK branch. And they are in this business of extracting information from EO imagery and selling it to anybody from hedge funds through to uh, big projects in the, uh, in, in the developing world. So those are, those are probably my top tips for, uh, for watching. Interestingly enough, None of them are the traditional vector GIS businesses. They're all newish companies with different approach to the stuff. But um, and, and it'll be interesting, Stephen, to see whether they peak very quickly and fall again very quickly, or whether they're more like Esri, who've, who've managed to buck the trend and, and keep growing over, over the last 20 or 30 years. I mean, they... They've changed their business model. They've done a tremendous amount in terms of looking at moving to talk about infrastructure rather than than point solutions. And they've also done a tremendous amount in terms of of moving on to the web. So Esri and and others like them are are still worth watching because uh, they they are still growing and they're impressive for their longevity. In fact, I was... Something prompted me to reread something that I wrote 10 years ago now. And in that, I'm not sure I predicted the demise of Esri, but I certainly was suggesting that the combination of open source, open data, Google, all of that was sort of crowding around Esri and that uh, they were going to be uh, on the back foot. And I reread this and thought, gosh, 
how wrong you were because they have adapted, as you said, very, very successfully to all of the challenges and I'm sure they'll carry on doing so. And probably at least one of these companies will end up being purchased by a Google or an Esri or a Hexagon and becoming an important part of their next decade of growth. How these guys survive, that's, that's how Hexagon have uh, got where they are. Indeed. So wrapping up, Andy, how can listeners read the executive summary of the report? Okay, so it's it's online. It's free, Stephen. Hopefully, you can put out the uh, the the web address. But uh, I will do. Just go to uh, www.consultingware.com forward slash LMS twenty. That's uh, that's where it is. Or or um, drop you or I um, an email, and we'll point them in the right direction. Okay, and if they want to email you, your email address is. So I'm andrew.coot at consultingware.com or at acoot on Twitter. Okay, and that's coot, C-O-T-C-O-T-E. Correct. Okay, and so the closing question. You've been to a few Geomod, but we haven't yet had the pleasure of having you as a speaker, which is something that I hope we can rectify once we're back up and running or even online. What were your favourite speaker? Well, it, Stephen, just I love the enthusiasm of the speakers and the, and, and the quality of the, the, the questions. Uh, so, you know, well done, well done to you and Ed for, for getting people involved. And also, I think there might be some potential in uh, exchange with your sister organisation, because I do quite a lot of work in Australia. They have an organisation called GeoRabble, and their sessions are also excellent. Directly answering your your uh, question, I I thought at your recent event, there's an organisation called Cunning Running, um, <laughs> and uh, don't try and say that after you've had too many Geo beers. But uh, <laughs> it, they. They are a really interesting organisation, what they do in terms of, of spatial analysis for lots and lots of different uses. Some of them in the uh, uh, the dark arts of intelligence, but uh, also a lot of the ideas that, that, that they have are just, are just first rate. And um, so well done for uh, getting them to come and talk openly about the kinds of things they do. Yeah, it was a very impressive talk. Uh, he was... Chris Barrington Brown was incredibly open about what they did. He didn't give away any national secrets or anything, but he did give a really great insight into what they were doing. Andy, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on the podcast today. I look forward to the time where we can actually toast each other face to face. But until then, cheers and thank you. Oh, and thank you, Stephen. I've enjoyed it. Okay, bye. Thanks, everyone, for joining us today and listening to the GeoMob podcast. Hopefully you've enjoyed the discussion. Please don't hesitate if you have any feedback for us or any suggestions for topics that we should cover in the future. You can get the show notes over on the website, which is at thegeomob.com. While you're there, if you're not yet on the mailing list, please do get on the mailing list where we once a month send out an email announcing future events, summarizing past events, and just generally sharing uh, events that you may find of interest. You can also, of course, follow us on Twitter, where our handle is Geomob. You can follow Steven at Steven Feldman. You can follow me at Fryfogel. You can check out Mappery at mappery.org. And of course, if you need any geocoding, please check out my service, which is opencagedata.com. We look forward to you joining us again at a future episode, and of course, seeing you at a future Geomob event. Hope to see you there soon. Bye.